Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Happy Father's Day. Well, well, good. Fathers often get a bum rap in our culture, but here at Crosswinds Church, we treat that differently. We realize that fatherhood is a very high calling. It's a very important calling. So dads, I hope you are encouraged and appreciated today for the role that God has given you to play in your family. As a church, we are studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today, we're picking up our study in Mark chapter 8, verse 11. So I'd ask everyone to take out their copy of God's Word. Uh, I don't mind if you use a phone or an electronic Bible. That's fine. We're going to read Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21 this morning. And I'd ask you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along with your eyes in your copy as I read those verses this morning. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand? How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? That ends the reading of God's Word, and you may be seated. As we look at these verses, what we find is that they're actually both, they're all focused in on the topic of unbelief, the incredible danger of unbelief. In the first little section, we look at the Pharisees, who had hard-hearted, open unbelief. But as in the second section, We look at the disciples, and we see that the disciples had much more subtle, but just as equally dangerous unbelief. Because unbelief, in whatever form it comes in, whether it's open, hard-hearted unbelief or subtle, covert unbelief, it'll send you to hell. And that's what we find in these verses. So we're going to begin as we dive in. First, we're going to look at the Pharisees, and then we'll look at the disciples and the different types of unbelief they have. So first of all, in your outlines, we see number one, rejecting Jesus can lead to hard-hearted unbelief. And I'd like to begin with the verse just prior to the verses we read, just to set some context. That's verse 10 of Mark chapter 8. 
says, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Jeremy, can you put that map up there for me? Thank you. This is where we were left off last week. Jesus had just fed the 4,000. It was in the area of the Decapolis, which is on the southeast side where the circle is, approximately in that area. After he finished feeding them, the Bible says he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and headed to the district of Dalmanutha, which is on the opposite side of the lake, just south of the area of Capernaum, which was his home base of operations. So he went back to the Jewish side of the lake, where he had been for a number of, for actually almost a year at that point. Incidentally, Mark calls this Dalmanutha. Uh, Matthew calls this Magdala. Why do we have these different names? The different names are simply because Mark was writing to the Gentiles. The Gentiles called it Dalmanutha. And the Matthew is writing to the Jews, and the Jews called it Magdala. So they're just using names that were appropriate for their audiences. And as we pick up the story in verse 11, at this point, Jesus has docked the boat with his disciples. They have just gone down the pier. They have gone onto the land, and they've essentially just arrived on the scene. And this is what we find. We find that those in hard-hearted unbelief will never, never have enough evidence. It comes out of this verse, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Remember the context. Jesus and his disciples have been gone for months at this point. They have taken a 150-mile trip, first going north and then going south and then going east. They've been gone for a long time. But as soon as they arrive, as soon as they get off the boat, there are their old friends to meet them, the Pharisees to oppose them. Now, the English that we read of this verse sort of cloaks a lot of the color and vividness that comes out in the original Greek of this verse. So let me see if I can give you some of that. Where it says the Pharisees came out to him. This word come it can literally be translated come as if in military rank. They came out to fight with him. They did not come out to greet him. This is the uh, Pharisees preparing for an MMA battle with no octagon. That's what they're doing here. They're going to oppose Jesus. In fact, that's literally what they says. As soon as they came to him, they began to argue with him. That means to oppose him or to cause trouble with him. Anything Jesus said, they immediately jumped on and tried to discredit it's sort of like watching modern politics. You know what I'm talking about? Some person may say one thing, but the opposite side twists it, turns it, and uses it in an inappropriate way. It just goes back and forth like that. And that is what the Pharisees have come to do to Jesus. As soon as he arrives, so he doesn't gain any more popularity, we're going to oppose him, and everything he says, we're going to discredit him. It also says they were seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Let me just jump in on this word test and explain it to you a little bit more. The word test here is not, does not mean to test to prove that something is actually right. 
It means to test, to make it fail. Like a fire alarm is the test to show it works. You expect it to work. But that's not the way the word test is being used here. It's the test to break. It's the same word that is used in Mark chapter 1, verse 13 to describe the kind of tests that Satan put Jesus through after he had been in the wilderness without food for 40 days. When he was dangling between life and death is when Satan came to test him to destroy. Whoa. And the sound guy in the back is going... He came to destroy him. And that's what they are doing. They are there going to try and give him a test so they can trap him and destroy him. Now let me tell you about this test. The test they want him to do is, we need you to give us a sign from heaven. And you say to yourself, so what's a sign from heaven and why would they ask for it? The Jews had um, a belief. And it was this that Satan could mimic uh, miracles on earth, but Satan could not mimic God's miracles in the heavens. And this belief actually came out of the book of Exodus. You remember with the book of Exodus, what happened was when Moses did a number of miracles by the hand of God in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's magicians tried to copy a number of them, and they mimicked the number of them. Moses turned water into blood and the Nile into blood, but yet the magicians of Pharaoh could do the same thing, it says, by their magical powers. But when it got to the point that the plagues were coming from heaven itself, Pharaoh's magicians were out of their league. They couldn't produce gnats. They couldn't produce hail. And the Jews in this day have this belief that Satan could produce counterfeit miracles on earth, but he couldn't produce counterfeit miracles in heaven. These Pharisees believe that Jesus is demonically powered. They think Satan is behind everything he's doing. So they're saying, we're going to test you and prove that you can fail because you cannot do a sign in the heavens. That's their goal at this point. Now you'd think Jesus would simply say, well, this is easy. Just make the sun blink on and off a few times and we're done. And they'll instantly believe. But Jesus didn't fall into that trap. He realized that no matter how much evidence he gave them, it wouldn't be enough for them to believe. Let me tell you a couple reasons why Jesus did not jump into their test Number one, did you realize all of Jesus' miracles were compassion for those in need, not entertainment value for those who watch? All of Jesus' miracles were compassion for those in need, not entertainment value for those who would want to watch. And these guys are just looking for Jesus to rearrange the stars for a while for their entertainments. Not the kind of thing Jesus does. Number two, If you think about it, all of Jesus' miracles so far have already been about pushing back the effects of Satan, sin, and death. Why would he be in league with Satan if he's been pushing back the effects of Satan? He's fed thousands. He's healed thousands. 
People who were lame can walk. Lepers who had lost parts of their body had them instantly recreated and their skin turned soft and and supple. The deaf were able to hear. The mute were able to speak as we learned with perfect grammar, a language they had never even heard. Why does Jesus need to prove that he's not working for Satan when he's been pushing back the effects of Satan? Third thing to notice is, you realize they already had more than enough evidence to believe that Jesus was from God. I'll prove that to you. Do you guys remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, verse 2. Nick at night, we called him when we studied the Gospel of John. That Nicodemus, who was a leader among the Pharisees, came to Jesus, and what did Nicodemus say? This man, that is Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus admitted they already had more than enough evidence. But here's what I want you to point out to you. Those hardened in unbelief will never have enough evidence. Jesus could rearrange the stars. It still wouldn't be enough. Jesus could make the sun blink. It still wouldn't be enough. Those hearted in unbelief just will not believe. Have you ever experienced people like that in your daily walk? Friends that you have maybe at work, you've Talk to them about Jesus. You've given them archaeological evidence for Jesus. You've given them historical evidence for Jesus. You've shared your testimony about how Jesus has changed your life. And it's not enough for them. It's because they're hardened in unbelief. And I think what we need to realize at this point, just expect that. That there'll be people out there that you and I will meet that are in hardened unbelief, and we cannot give them enough evidence to believe. Because what they need is not more evidence. They need a change in their hearts. Amen? Amen. The next thing we learn. Those in hard-hearted unbelief will work together against those who believe. This actually doesn't come out of Mark. This comes from the parallel passage in Matthew. When I was studying it, I noticed it. It says this. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a a sign from heaven. What's interesting about this is Matthew tells us it wasn't just the Pharisees in this encounter, but it was the Sadducees who were there with them to oppose Jesus. And you say, so what? Here's what you need to know. Pharisees and Sadducees were arch-theological enemies. They are completely opposite sides of the spectrum. The Pharisees are the ultra-conservatives. The Sadducees are the ultra-liberals. They're usually fighting each other like the Democrats and Republicans do in our culture. Pharisees, they uh, memorized the Word of God. They assigned just about all kinds of spiritual value to everything in the Word of God. They had rules and regulations above and beyond the Word of God. The Pharisees, they hate Roman occupation. They hate the Greek culture and despise it. Sadducees, 
They're the liberals who really don't have much interest in the Word of God. They're the ones who ran the temple. The Sadducees were the ones who uh, would sell the sacrificial animals and jack up the price real high to rip people off because they're really about profit. They're really about money. The Sadducees, incidentally, didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spiritual beings. And guess what the Sadducees were, felt about the Romans? They loved Roman occupation because it meant more money if they could be in league with the Romans. To give you an idea of how uh, much of an enemy these two groups normally are, you can check out sometime Acts 23. In Acts 23, Paul was arrested, he was going in, and he cried out to the crowd, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Now there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees in that group. And what do you think it happened? It turned into a street battle a complete brawl where they literally broke out in fistfights against one another. Because the Pharisees said, well, maybe, maybe somebody rose from the dead. The Sadducees, nobody rises from the dead. They're that much of enemies. But here you see they're willing to work together. Those in hardened unbelief will always be willing to work together against those who have belief. Let me say that again. Those in hardened unbelief will put aside their differences to work together against those who have belief. That's not just true in the ancient world, but isn't it true in the modern world today? Where we find there's all kinds of religious freedom and religious expression for a bunch of different religions, but when it comes to the Christian religion, then all of a sudden everybody wants to dampen us out. Chick-fil-A is always getting in trouble for being closed on Sunday, but the Chinese restaurant never gets in trouble for being closed on Monday. You notice that? This is what we learned. Next point. Those in hard-hearted unbelief move further away from Jesus, actually, the more evidence that they are given. It's verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And Jesus sighs here. It's not a sigh of anger. It's actually a sigh of despair. At this point, Jesus is saying, I am so done with you. I have so lost patience with you guys. I'm at the end of my rope with you guys. I mean, I was gone for months. And the first thing that happens when I come in is you guys want to fight with me. You've seen thousands of miracles. You've seen thousands fed. And all you want to do is oppose me. You want to fight with me. And you want a sign from me. No, we're done with that. Matthew in his gospel, which is the parallel account of this, it gives us a little bit more in the way of details of what Jesus said. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed." 
says, realize, guys, you're better meteorologists than you are theologians. You could read the sky and tell the weather, but I could do a miracle in the sky and you still couldn't read it and get it right. See, no matter what Jesus was doing, they didn't seem to be able to see it. They didn't seem to be able to realize what he was doing. And Jesus is like, I've had it. I'm done with you guys. In fact, it's interesting, from this point forward, Jesus does not do any more miracles in Galilee. Jesus does not do any more miracles in front of these religious leaders. He's gone. That's what they wanted. But the sad truth is their window of opportunity to come to Jesus and to repent and be with Jesus, it's done. He's had enough. Incidentally, in the interest of transparency, there is one more time in this gospel that Jesus does go through Galilee. But if you read the text, it tells us that he passed through covertly and without any miracles. Let me show you. Oops. Did I skip a section? I think I skipped a section. Oh, well. Uh, let me see. Where was I at? Oh, here we go. Jesus did say, by the way, that he was going to do only one more sign for them. And that was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, let me explain to you what that is. Jonah, as you know, was in the belly of the fish, as good as dead, for three days and three nights until God commanded that um, Jonah would be vomited up and he came back to life, at least figuratively. But Jesus will do one more sign and that is that he will die on the cross, and then he will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, and he will come back to life, not figuratively, but literally he will come back to life. Now, they wanted a sign in the heavens. You know, they, had, they said if they would see a sign in the heavens, they would believe. Jesus gave them better than a sign in the heavens. They saw him die. They certified his death. And three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that he is God. Did they believe? Absolutely not. They make up, made up a story. And the story is that the disciples stole the body. You see, no matter how much evidence Jesus gave them, they still would not believe. In fact, the more evidence Jesus gave them, it just pushed them further and further away because of their hardened unbelief. And I think that's something that we could apply to our lives today. Realize there will be people out there that we will meet, that we will tell them about Jesus. But the more we tell them about Jesus, the harder they resist Jesus. So there is no amount of evidence we can give them that will be enough. And all the evidence we give them just is something they reject and use to further entrench themselves in unbelief. Another observation, point D. Those in hard-hearted unbelief must remember the opportunity to turn to Jesus doesn't last forever. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. And that sounds like an unimportant throwaway verse. It's certainly not a throwaway verse. Because as I mentioned earlier, 
This is the time where Jesus leaves them, goes to the other side, and he never returns to Galilee again to do any miracles there. He's done with them. Their window of opportunity to return to Christ and repent in Christ is completely shut because of their hard-hearted unbelief. And here's the point I'd like to make for you. We need to realize that our opportunity to turn to Christ and trust in Christ does not stay open forever. It's a limited window of opportunity. And especially those in hard-hearted unbelief, sometimes God shuts that window of opportunity when you least expect it. There's Old Testament evidence for this. Do you guys remember the Exodus generation? The Exodus generation who had seen all of the plagues that God put on Pharaoh and Egypt? The Exodus generation who had walked across the Red Sea on dry ground with walls of water on their left and on their right? The Exodus generation who had manna fed to them every morning in the desert? The Exodus generation who had water come out of a rock twice to supply their thirst and numerous other miracles. But when it came time for them to go into the promised land, they displayed their persistent, hard-hearted unbelief. No, we cannot go in. We cannot do it. God will not provide for us. And what did God do? Enough is enough. I'm done. Your window of opportunity is closed because of your hard-hearted unbelief. You're going to walk for 40 years in a circle in the wilderness until every single one of you die. Your children, they're going to be the ones to go in. And I say that uh, just because, well, before I say it, let me just read about that in Hebrews. Hebrews describes that. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Their window of opportunity didn't stay open forever because they had more than enough evidence, but they chose not to believe the evidence. Eventually, God closed the door. Same thing we see happening to these Pharisees, these religious leaders. More than enough evidence. They've seen thousands of miracles, but finally Jesus says, enough is enough, I'm gone. Now I want to encourage you. Maybe you're here this morning who's a visitor. Maybe the reason you're here is because your friends or your family have drugged you in the door. And you really haven't trusted in Christ. You haven't given your life to Christ. You have more than enough evidence. Maybe you've read the Bible. Maybe you've seen the Bible. You've seen the changed lives and the people around you. You need to know that if you persist in hard-hearted unbelief, there may come a time when God says enough is enough and shut the door for the opportunity to believe. The scriptures say, today is the day, now is the time. 
to trust in the Lord. Well, the first part we've seen about hard-hearted, open, obvious unbelief in the lives of the Pharisees. Now we go to subtler unbelief that is just as lethal, but it's in the lives of the disciples. Familiarity with Jesus can lead to practical unbelief. We know that Jesus' disciples have uh, set sail from the region of Dalmanutha. As we go a little further into the gospel, we see that they are actually sailing to the area of Bethsaida, which is the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's the very area where Jesus had fed the 5,000. And we pick up the text with these words. They forgot to bring bread on the trip. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Matthew, in his parallel account, tells us this. The, the bread part actually took place when they finally landed the boat on the other side and opened their lunchbox. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. All they had, it says, is one loaf. We learned in our earlier studies what the size of these loaves are. They're about the size of pita breads, with about the fluffiness in, in, of a pita bread. Not nearly enough to feed 12 hungry men who have sailed from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake and now turned around and sailed all the way back to the other side of the lake. So they're pretty hungry for lunch. And they open the lunchbox and find out they're really short on lunch. Now, whoever the disciple that was that was in charge of packing that day, we know is in major trouble at this point. Maybe the reason they didn't have any lunch is simply because when Jesus decided to leave, when the Pharisees, he left quickly. He left immediately, and they didn't even have a chance to pack. But the interesting part is while they're thinking about lunch, Jesus was lecturing them. It says that Jesus was busy cautioning them. Watch out, beware of the leaven, and the, le the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The word caution here in Greek means to give very explicit and strong instruction. It's the same kind of way your mother looked at you when you were a child and told you not to play in traffic. She was going to make sure you understood that instruction. This, is, this word caution is in the imperfect tense in Greek, which means he didn't just say it once, but he kept saying this again and again. You must listen to what I'm saying. You have to hear this. This is really, really important. And he's warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And you say, well, what would that be? Think about leaven for a moment. Almost every single time it is referred to in the Bible, except for two, it is used in a negative sense. It is used to describe evil and sin. And one of the reasons that leaven is pictured that way is because leaven is like yeast. That's what it is. You put a little bit of leaven in a loaf of bread, it does not take long for that leaven to spread quickly throughout the loaf of bread. It infects everything. And what he's saying is be very careful of the sinful unbelief of the Pharisees and of Herod. 
because it spreads quickly, it infects quickly, and it could even spread and infect you. Now, we, we know that the unbelief of the Pharisees, that's open, rebellious, hard-hearted unbelief because they think Jesus is powered by Satan. The leaven of Herod, what's that? Herod actually was earlier in the text. Herod believed that Jesus' miracles were from God, but he believed that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. So he gave God the credit for the miracles, but he had the wrong identity of Jesus. And Jesus said, unbelief, in whatever form it comes, whether it is open unbelief like the Pharisees or partial unbelief like Herod, is subtle, it spreads, and it is deadly. Now, here's what I think is very interesting. While Jesus is warning them about uh, this danger of unbelief, and he's trying to drive this into their head, what are the disciples worried about? Not unbelief, not listening to anything he says. Where's lunch? And this is what we learn. Practical unbelief of the disciples is being more concerned about little things than our relationship with Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus is lecturing them about this important spiritual truth, the danger of unbelief, and they are discussing with one another the fact that they don't have any lunch. Jesus is trying to teach them about eternal things, things that will... <laughs> the ramifications of which will change people's lives for eternity because unbelief is so deadly. And all they're thinking about is, what am I going to eat? We don't have enough food. And here's what's going on. The danger is the daily contact they had with Jesus has made them so familiar with Jesus that their hearts have grown cold towards Jesus. The daily contact they've had with Jesus has made them so familiar with Jesus, their hearts have actually grown cold. In fact, we see this in earlier parts of Mark's gospel. Remember when Jesus began doing miracles in Capernaum and Jesus' mother and brothers came to him to, to arrest him and to, to take him home because they thought he was out of his mind? Well, he can't be the Messiah. He's my son. He's my brother. We're so familiar with Jesus that they don't recognize the identity of Jesus. Remember Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, when he went there? He got up and he gave a, a little message out of the book of Isaiah about the Messiah and he said that today these words are fulfilled in your ears and they recognized him as claiming to be the Messiah. Even after he's done all these miracles, what did they do? They tried to murder him. Throw him off the brow of the cliff upon which the city was built. They tried to murder Jesus. They were so familiar with Jesus that their hearts had grown hard toward Jesus. And they suddenly had unbelief in Jesus. Folks, this subtle unbelief in Jesus is just as deadly as open, hard-hearted unbelief in Jesus. Let me prove that to you. Remember Judas? 
three years of being with Jesus, of being on the inner circle, of seeing the feeding of thousands, of seeing the miracles and healing of thousands. But at the end, did he really believe? Absolutely not. And Judas ended up in hell. He walked a good walk. He talked a good talk. But subtly, he had been infected with unbelief. And it was the end of his life. Now, I have to ask you, is that you today? Are your lives infected with subtle unbelief? Are you so familiar with Jesus that you take Jesus for granted? I can tell you a little bit how you can um, discern that in your life. What is of greatest interest to you? Where you're going to eat lunch today? Or what you're learning from God's Word today? Are you worried about the big things, the eternal things, how you're walking with Christ, how you're obeying Christ? Or are you worried about little things? Where will I eat lunch? What will I do this afternoon? What can I do for fun? You see, if we're more concerned about little things than God's big things, it's probably because we have grown so familiar with Jesus, we've lost sight of Jesus, and we've been infected with unbelief in Jesus. Let me tell you the best way to, to worry about lunch. The best way to uh, be concerned about lunch. Focus on Jesus, and he will take care of lunch. We had this memory verse last week, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let me read Matthew 6, in context in the Sermon on the Mount. And it just sings this right out. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Focus on Jesus and your relationship with him and pleasing him in daily life, and he will take care of all the rest of the details. He'll provide your lunch. That's what the scripture says. Well, the first way we see that subtle unbelief is crept into our life is when we're focusing on little unimportant things, instead of the big important thing like our relationship with God and how we can please Him. The second thing we see to identify unbelief in our life is when practical unbelief is forgetting how God provided in the past when faced with problems in the present. Reading verse 17 through 21. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? We'll try again. Don't know what that is. Is that any better, Tyler? Okay. Maybe my cord was caught. I'll try again. Back to the scriptures. Do you not remember? 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to them, and he, they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? In other words, are you having miracle amnesia? I fed 20,000 people off of five loaves. That's 5,000 plus the women and children. I fed 15 to 17,000 people off of seven loaves. That's the feeding of the 4,000 once you include the women and children. I have to feed 12 of you off of one loaf? That's a cakewalk. I took care of you in the past in much greater challenges. Why would I fail to take care of you in the present with much lesser challenges? Folks, aren't we guilty of that? As soon as a problem comes in our life, we freak out, we lose it. God, what's going to happen? When the reality is, if we look backwards, think of all the problems and challenges we've been through in the past, but every single time Jesus has provided, God has carried us through, hasn't he? And if he's carried us through in the past and been faithful there, he will carry us through in the presence and be faithful there. If we freak out and we lose it every single time we have a problem in the present, if we have miracle amnesia, it's because unbelief has started to creep into our lives in a very subtle way. We're starting to freak out like everyone else in this world. When as God's children, we don't need to freak out because Jesus will take care of us. In the first half of this gospel, we find, or we usually would expect that the Pharisees were the bad guys and the disciples are the good guys. But what we find at this point is, well, the Pharisees are the bad guys who have open, hard-hearted unbelief. The disciples are sort of even questionable at this point because the leaven of unbelief, which spreads so quickly, has begun to infect them. And they are struggling with subtle unbelief. Subtle unbelief and open hard-hearted unbelief. It sends people to hell. The question I have to ask you this morning is this. While you're probably not struggling with open hard-hearted unbelief, are you struggling with subtle unbelief? Has unbelief infected you as well? You know how you can know if you're struggling with it? Let me look at the applications. Examine your heart. What are the things that you're worrying about? Little things? Things that God has promised to provide? Or big things? Like your relationship with Him and how you please Him every day. Focus on the big things and God will take care of the little things. Another way you can see if there's unbelief in your life or subtle unbelief is when you go through a trial, do you fall apart or do you look backwards and say, God has taken care of me in the past. I'm confident He will see me through in the present. If you don't look backwards, 
but you fall apart, maybe unbelief has crept into your life as well. Second application. Let me give you just some other things. Do you pray like you believe? So many times as Christians, we don't pray like we believe that God is actually going to answer. Because subtle unbelief has crept into our lives. Do you read the Bible like you actually need it? The scriptures describe the Bible as essential to our spiritual life as food is to our physical life. If you're somebody who doesn't have your finger in the text because you say, well, I've read it before, subtle unbelief has crept into your life. We need God's word for our spiritual life every day. Well, what do you do if this morning you find that unbelief has started to creep into your soul? Here's what you do. You follow our memory verse for this week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to confess that unbelief, it's so infectious. Unbelief at times creeps into our souls. We focus on little unimportant things instead of the big and most important things like walking with you and being faithful to you. We also want to confess that when trials and tribulations come our way, we fall apart. We fail to look backwards and see how you've been faithful in the past and you'll be faithful in the present. We just want to confess that unbelief to you and ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would reinvigorate our spirits once again to trust you and follow you fully with all of our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.